Welcome everyone to another mini-sode of Cryptique, the show where we bring you stories of the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and the like. You can email case suggestions, questions, and comments to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you like the show, give us a five-star review. If true crime is more your flavor, check out my other show, Exploring Evil. And if you're looking for your next favorite movie, check out Ryan's other podcast, Movie Howl. Now, sit back and enjoy a story about a phantom of a man or woman from Illinois in the 1940s. It's time for the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, also known as the Anesthetic Prowler, Frizz, the Phantom Anesthetist, or simply the Mad Gasser, was the name given to the person or people believed to be responsible for a series of apparent gas attacks that occurred in Mattoon, Illinois during the mid-1940s. More than 20 separate cases of gassings were reported to police over the span of two weeks in addition to many more reported sightings of the suspected assailant. The gasser's supposed victims reported smelling strange odors in their homes, which were soon followed by symptoms such as paralysis of the legs, coughing, nausea, and vomiting. No one died or had serious medical consequences, though. Police remained skeptical of the accounts throughout the entire incident, and reported gassings may have had simple explanations such as spilled nail polish or odors emanating from animals or local factories. Victims made quick recoveries from their symptoms and suffered no long-term effects. Nevertheless, local newspapers ran alarmist articles about the reported attacks and treated the accounts as fact. The attacks are widely considered to be a case of mass hysteria, but for mass hysteria, there certainly were a lot of separate incidents reported. However, others maintain that the mad gasser actually existed or that the perceived attacks have another explanation, such as industrial pollution. Most contemporary descriptions of the mad gasser are based on the testimony of Mr. and Mrs. Burt Kearney of 1408 Marshall Avenue, the victims of the first Mattoon case to be reported by the media. They described the gasser as being a tall, thin man dressed in dark clothing and wearing a tight-fitting cap. Another report, made some weeks later, described the gasser as being a female dressed as a man. The gasser had also been described as carrying a flit gun, an agricultural tool for spraying pesticide, which he purportedly used to expel the gas. You may have seen flit guns in old cartoons. It looks like a basketball pump with a small barrel on the end to hold chemicals. The first of the 1944 gasser incidents occurred at a house on Grant Avenue, Mattoon, on August 31, 1944. 
Urban Rafe was awakened during the early hours of the morning by a strange odor. He felt nauseated and weak and suffered from a fit of vomiting. Suspecting that he was suffering from domestic gas poisoning, Rafe's wife tried to check the kitchen stove to see if there was a problem with the pilot light, but found that she was partially paralyzed and unable to leave her bed. Later that night, a similar incident was also reported by a young mother living close by. She was awakened by the sound of her daughter coughing, but found herself unable to leave her bed. The next day, September 1st, there was a third reported incident. Mrs. Kearney of Marshall Avenue reported smelling a strong, sweet odor around 11 p.m. At first, she dismissed the smell, believing it to be from flowers outside of the window, but the odor soon became stronger, and she began to lose feeling in her legs. Mrs. Kearney panicked, and her calls attracted her sister, Mrs. Reddy, who was in the house at the time. Mrs. Reddy also noticed the odor and determined that it was coming from the direction of the bedroom window, which was open at the time. The police were contacted, but no evidence of a prowler was found. At around 12.30 a.m., Bert Kearney, Mrs. Kearney's husband, a local taxi driver who had been absent during the time of the attack, returned home to find an unidentified man hiding close to one of the house's windows. The man fled, and Kearney was unable to catch him. Kearney's description of the prowler was of a tall man dressed in dark clothing, wearing a tight-fitting cap. This description was reported in the local media and became the common description of the gasser throughout the Mattoon incident. After the attack, Mrs. Kearney reported suffering from a burning sensation on her lips and throat, which were attributed to the effects of the gas. Initially, it was suspected that robbery was the primary motive for the attack. At the time of the incident, the Kearneys had a large sum of money in the house, and it was surmised that the prowler could have seen Mrs. Kearney and her sister counting it earlier that evening. Local newspapers incorrectly reported this incident as being the first gasser attack. In the days following the Kearney attack, there were half a dozen similar attacks, though none of the purported victims were able to provide a clear description of the prowler, and no clues were found at the scene of the attacks. The first specimen of physical evidence was found on the night of September 5th when Carl and Beulah Cordes of North 21st Street returned home around 10 p.m. After spending a few minutes in the house, they noticed a piece of white cloth, slightly larger than a man's handkerchief, sitting on their porch next to the screen door. Beulah Cordes picked up the cloth and smelled it. As soon as she inhaled, she became violently ill. She described the effect as being similar to an electric shock. Her face quickly began to swell. She experienced a burning sensation in her mouth and throat and began to vomit. As with other victims, she also reported feeling weak and experiencing partial paralysis of her legs. Beulah Cordes later hypothesized that the cloth had been left on the porch in order to knock out the family dog, which usually slept there so that the prowler could gain access to the house unnoticed. In addition to the cloth, a skeleton key described as looking well-used was reportedly found on the sidewalk adjacent to the porch along with a large, almost empty, tube of lipstick. The cloth was analyzed by the authorities, but they found no chemicals on it that could explain Beulah's reaction. The same night, a second incident was reported this time on North 13th Street at the home of Mrs. Leonard Burrell. 
She reported seeing a stranger break in through her bedroom window and then attempting to gas her. Public concern over the alleged gassings quickly rose. The FBI became involved, and the local police issued a statement calling on residents to avoid lingering in residential areas, and warning groups set up to patrol for the gasser should be disbanded for reasons of public safety. Chief of Police C.E. Cole also warned concerned citizens to exercise due restraint when carrying or discharging firearms. During this period, there was also an increase in physical evidence of attacks being reported, ranging from footprints being discovered underneath windows to cuts being found in window screens. By September 12th, local police had received so many false alarms, mostly from citizens believing that they smelled gas or that they had seen a prowler, that they reduced the priority afforded to gasser reports and announced that the entire incident was likely the result of explainable occurrences exacerbated by public fears and a sign of anxiety felt by women while local men were on war service. After the police announcement, gasser reports declined. The only incident of arguable note after that date was the case of Bertha Birch, who claimed she saw a gasser who was a woman dressed as a man. The first attack was August 31st. There were three reported attacks on September 1st and two on September 5th, seven on September 6th, one each on the 7th and 8th, two on the 9th, three on the 10th, and one on the 13th for a total of 22 incidents. There are three primary theories about the Mattoon Mad Gasser incident. Mass hysteria, industrial pollution, or an actual physical assailant. The events have also been written about by several authors on the paranormal. Mass hysteria. Almost two weeks after the Mattoon attacks began, the local commissioner of public health, Thomas V. Wright, announced that there had undoubtedly been a number of gassing incidents, but that many instances were likely due to hysteria. Residents hearing of alarming events and then panicking when confronted by an out-of-place odor or a shadow at the window. Wright stated, There is no doubt that a gas maniac exists and has made a number of attacks, but many of their reported attacks are nothing more than hysteria. Fear of the gas man is entirely out of proportion to the menace of the relatively harmless gas he is spraying. The whole town is sick with hysteria. On September 12th, local chief of police C.E. Cole took Wright's hypothesis a step further, announcing that there had likely been no gas attacks at all and that the reported incidents had probably been triggered by chemicals carried on the wind from nearby industrial facilities and then exacerbated by public panic. Wright and Cole's diagnosis was given further validity in 1945 when the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology published The Phantom Anesthetist of Mattoon, a field study of mass hysteria by Donald M. Johnson, which documented the Mattoon incident as a case study in mass hysteria. In 1959, his opinion was seconded by psychologist James P. Chaplin and went on to form the basis for several subsequent studies of the phenomena of mass hysteria. Hello friends and enemies, this is Jay. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Cryptique. If true crime is a passion of yours, like it is mine, you should check out my other podcast, Exploring Evil. I cover some of the lesser known serial killers as well as murderers with a paranormal twist. 
I've covered the cannibal rapper and a murderous shaman, as well as a man who claimed he was the gatekeeper to hell. So take Exploring Evil for a test drive on Google, Apple, Spotify, and of course, Anchor Podcasts. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Now, back to Cryptique. Most of the physical symptoms recorded during the incidents, including choking, swelling of mucous membranes, and weakness or temporary paralysis, have all been suggested symptoms of hysteria. Some experts believe that the mass hysteria was fueled by the headline in the Mattoon Journal-Gazette, Mrs. Kearney and Daughter First Victim, which assumed there would be more attacks. Toxic Waste or Pollution On September 12th, Chief of Police Cole said at a press conference that odors and symptoms reported may have been the result of pollutants or toxic waste released by nearby industrial plants and speculated that carbon tetrachloride or trichloroethylene, both of which have a sweet odor and can induce symptoms similar to those reported by purported gasser victims, may have been the substance released. In response to Cole's statement, Atlas Imperial, the primary company implicated in this affair, released a statement of its own saying that their facility had only five gallons of carbon tetrachloride in stock, which was contained in firefighting equipment. Atlas Imperial officials also denied that any quantities of trichloroethylene, an industrial solvent used by Atlas, could be responsible for sickness in the town, reasoning that it would have taken significant quantities of the chemical to sicken the townspeople and that factory workers would have experienced similar symptoms long before anybody outside of the factory was affected. At the time of the gassing, the Atlas plant had been certified as safe by the State Department of Health. Scott Maruna researched the topic and wrote the book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria. Scott Maruna says he is ready to name names. For two years, he researched leads, interviewed witnesses, and poured over every bit of information he could dig up on the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. He studied police reports, pondered newspaper accounts, and constructed criminal profiles. I think I have been almost obsessed with this case for the past two years, Maruna said. I have probably read everything ever written about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. After countless hours of hard work and investigation, Maruna said he had made some startling discoveries, unlocking secrets surrounding the case that have been buried for the last 60 years. Maruna said he has uncovered the true identity of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. And while the name of the gasser may come as no surprise to some longtime Mattoon residents, he believes most people will be shocked by what he calls the other half of the story. According to Maruna's book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon Dispelling the Hysteria, 
The real Mad Gasser was not an escaped Nazi or a figment of the imagination, as many other publications have reported over the last several decades. Instead, Maruna's theory suggests the Gasser was actually a well-known resident of Mattoon, someone from an influential family who had a grudge against many area residents and desired revenge against a town that would not accept him. The person, according to Maruna's book, was Farley Llewellyn, the son of a grocer who was considered a pillar of the community. Although his father was highly respected, Farley never fit in to the Mattoon community. When I spoke with people who knew him, the same words would keep coming up over and over. Odd, different, recluse, loner, Maruna said. Although he was highly intelligent and excelled in school, no one ever really understood him. When Farley returned to Mattoon after attending the University of Illinois as a chemistry major, Maruna's sources reported that he became even more introverted and distant. Spending most of his time in a full-scale cellar chemistry laboratory on his family's property, Farley began drinking heavily. Only days prior to the first Mad Gasser attack, one neighbor recalls an explosion that resulted from one of Farley's experiments in the secret lab. Maruna said he has no doubt that the explosion occurred while Farley was testing the gas he would later use to torment local residents. I believe his true motive was to blow up the town, Maruna said. Maruna, a Jacksonville chemistry and physics teacher who grew up in Charleston, said the gas Farley used could have been nitromethane, a sweet-smelling, clear, and highly volatile liquid that can cause nausea, burning of the mouth, swelling of the lips, and minimal eye irritation. Because nitromethane evaporates quickly, little to no evidence would often be left by the time police arrived at the scene of the attacks. Following almost all of the attacks, victims described the gas as smelling sweet, with one person comparing it to the smell of cheap perfume. It was not long after the gasser attacks began during the first week of September 1944 that Farley became a suspect. In fact, many Mattoon residents told him that they knew Farley was the true mad gasser all along. Why, then, have police and others remained silent for so long? It was purely out of respect for Farley's family, primarily his father. In fact, it is only because all members of the Llewellyn family are now dead that many area residents are finally willing to speak out. In addition, a twist in the case cast a shadow of doubt on police suspicions that Farley was the mad gasser. Farley was placed under constant police surveillance following the first several gassings. However, the attacks continued to occur, baffling police and giving the appearance that Farley was innocent. Maruna believes that, in an attempt to clear their brother's name, Farley's two sisters, Florence and Catherine Llewellyn, assumed the role of the Mad Gasser for the final series of attacks. According to Maruna's book, the later gassings became much more sloppy and were markedly different from the earlier attacks. While Farley had preyed on couples and families during the early gassings, his sisters targeted younger victims, often single women. The final victim of the gasser reported that her sons chased the culprit down a back alley behind her house and later found a set of footprints under the window where the paralyzing gas had been sprayed. Prints that were made by a pair of women's high-heeled shoes. Although Farley was no longer considered the prime suspect in the case, 
The Llewellyn family placed him in a state mental institution following the final Mad Gasser attack, where he lived out the remainder of his life. The Llewellyn sisters were never considered as suspects and remained in Mattoon until their deaths. So there you have it. The truth is finally out. At least one version of it. That is what I love so much about the Mad Gasser case, Maruna said. There are so many opposing viewpoints, and I think there is a little bit of truth to all of them. So I hope you enjoyed the story of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, one of my favorite paranormal slash true crime stories. It's obscure and interesting because it's so different than other stories and really stands alone. You may be able to find Maruna's book, The Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Dispelling the Hysteria, on Amazon or eBay from time to time, but it has become almost as obscure as the story itself. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cryptique. Email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe so you won't miss a single episode and give us a five-star review. Thanks for listening to Cryptique.